Welcome to the Rod and Arrow Outdoors podcast, where expert advice becomes real results. At RNA, we are public land hunters that love to share our passion of the outdoors. So join us and our pro staff team as we speak with experts in the industry to share insight and knowledge to help make hunters more successful. All right, welcome listeners to the Rod and Arrow Outdoors podcast. I'm your host, Lucas Paw. This is episode number five, and we are broadcasting from Boise, Idaho. Today's a pretty special day in that uh, it's Thanksgiving, so uh, we just uh, partaked in probably one of the best prime rib dinners that I know that I've ever had. Uh, Our guests we're going to introduce here shortly and and talk to um, smoked a, how big was that prime rib? Uh, I think that was about a nine-pounder. Nine-pound prime rib on the grill, actually on the Komodo, smoked it. And uh, if I could post pictures with the podcast, I'll do it because it was freaking amazing. But uh, so yeah, so we got a lot to be thankful for, uh, and uh, yeah, and, that, and we're just we're just glad to be here uh, and excited to talk uh, to Mike today. So before we get into that, we're going to do a little bit of intro uh, and trivia around the Royal Coachman fly. So actually the Royal Coachman was made by John Haley, who was a professional fly dresser living in New York City. Um, what was interesting about him uh, is that uh, in writing uh, of these matters, he, ex- he, he actually enclosed this fly for you to see, saying a gentleman wanted me to tie up some coachmen for him to take to the North Woods and make them extra strong. So I've tied them with a little band of silk in the middle to prevent a peacock body from fraying out. I have also added a tail of barred feathers of wood duck, and I think it makes it very handsome fly. A few evenings later, a circle of us were getting together, disputing the flying question, one of the party claiming that numbers were quite as suitable to designate the flies as so many ridiculous names. The others did not agree with him, but he said, What can you do? Here is a fly intended to be a coachman, but is not the true coachman. It is quite unlike it in what you call it. This happened to be Mr. L.C. Orvis, brother of Mr. Charles Orvis, who would present him said, Oh, that is easy enough. Call it a rail coachman. It is so finely dressed. And this name and time has come to be known and used by many who are all familiar with this fly, the actual rail coachman. So, interesting, this dates back to the early 1900s. And uh, we think about fly fishing, you know, this is a this is a pastime that has been with us for many years. And... Uh, continues to evolve in technology and uh, is just something that uh, both Mike and I have a huge passion for. So without any further ado, um, today on the show we're joined by one of my good friends. Uh, He's a guy that actually kind of helped me get into fly fishing a little more than I ever was. Um, He's a big outdoorsman, uh, but specifically uh, he fly ties and we're going to talk specifically today about um, you know his passion for tying not only fly fishing but also tying flies. So I want to introduce to the show Mike Hicks to the podcast. Welcome, Mike. Thank you. So Mike, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, maybe kind of how you got your start in outdoorsy type stuff and kind of where the passion came from. So you know, growing up in Idaho, we got a lot of blue ribbon streams out here and some of the best trout fishing in North America. And growing up, that was something I always wanted to do was fly fish. Uh, unfortunately, my father didn't know how to fly fish. That was something he always wanted to do. And I always kept chasing that down and chasing that down. And uh, finally, when I went off to college by pure accident, I met a guy who is 
quite the avid fly fisherman. Uh, he and I fish several times a year and have for God, 25 years now and I still learn something from him every time I go out. It's a, it's a, it's a lifelong sport. Yeah, absolutely it is. Did, um, when you were a kid, did your dad expose you to fishing and outdoorsy type activities? Yeah, we did a lot of fishing. Um, he would always point out the guys who were fly fishing and wow, look at these guys. They're already limited out and going home and we're still trying to figure out you know, do do we use a worm or do we use salmon eggs? And, you know, where, where can we find a deep hole to sink these things? And these guys are just ripping fish out of the water left and right. Always make me jealous. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. The, a lot of the fond memories I have as a kid were fishing with my father. And a lot of them were ice fishing in the ice cold tundra in northern Montana where we dropped the ice house off and, and we were fishing for muskie and, and other different types of fish. But those are some of the memories I have of my father were, were specifically fishing, not so much fly fishing, but um, stream fishing and, and spin cast fishing and so forth. So mm-hmm. very cool. Okay. So with that, um, we'll just kind of go in and, and start talking about uh, some of the topics we have this afternoon that we want to cover. So specifically, you know, fly tying. So Obviously, there was a progression. You probably started as a fly fisherman, um, got to a point where um, you became a fairly seasoned fly fisherman, and then you said, you know what, I think it'd probably be really cool to catch a fish on a, on a fly that I actually tied. So what was that turning point for you to say, I'm going to start tying my own flies? You know, I've always been a real hands-on person, and so that's something that I've always, everything that I do, I want to try to figure out how can they do it. Even if it's something I'm not good at, that's like my my bucket list item. So I started fly fishing, and then, you know, of course you see the, the flies and you're looking at some of these patterns, and I'm sure everybody out there has seen, if they've never fly fished before, they're looking at this going, how is that possible? How does anybody think of this? And, you know, so I knew that's something I would get into one of these days. And that happened pretty fast after you start buying flies. And when you're learning how to fly fish, you lose a lot in the beginning. And... Uh, I'm sure it's a pretty common term everywhere, but we always call it, well, that was a $2 cast because you get excited <laughs> yeah. and, you know, that, that uh, fly line actually breaks the speed of sound and there goes your fly and you're tying a new one on. And, yeah. you know, well, when you're beginning, it's pretty easy to have a $15, $20 day. Yeah, absolutely. But, uh, I, I've got to learn how to tie these and, and cheapen up this sport a little bit. Yeah. You start getting into some of those larger terrestrials and other things where you're you're throwing, you know, not only just the commercial ones, but the, you know, the ones that are done by local shops, the three to $5 yeah. flies, even some of the BWOs and the other ones, it, it can be an expensive hobby if you're out there tying them on every few minutes. Absolutely. So there's probably a different, uh, you know, when you, when you catch a fish on a fly that you tie, there's obviously that's got to be a different feeling than just doing something out of the box. It is way cool. I can remember the very first fish that I caught on a fly that I tied was on Elk Creek, uh, just outside of Idaho City. I caught it on a, a, a muskrat nymph that I tied up, and that was, I just felt like a giddy little kid. I could not believe that I fooled the fish into biting this. Because uh, Let me tell you, Lucas, this was an ugly fly. <laughs> this <laughs> That's <was> okay, bad. <laughs> though. It was so, bad, but it worked. Sometimes it doesn't matter That's how ugly exactly they are, right. it's the presentation, right? Yeah, so when you were saying you were hands-on, actually one of the things I may have failed to introduce you as is actually Dr. Hicks. So I've, I've always kind of referred to Mike as a doctor because um, not only in his passion for fly fishing and fly tying, but 
uh, in his off work, he does a lot of acupuncture and other things that uh, uh, help other people move better. And, and uh, so uh, I failed to mention that, but I thought that was something cool as well. So anyway, um, so with that, so thinking about like an amateur fly tire, you know, let's say I've never tied a fly. I've watched folks do it. I've, I've been to trade shows where they do, you know, fly tying. Uh, and uh, it's, it's very neat. It's, it's definitely an art. And I think it's a science. I think it's a little bit of both, but I think it's more of an art than a science. But, you know, if I was to start right now and run down to Cabela's, you know, what's some of the basic equipment um, that I would need for like an amateur fly tire just to get started? You know, so to start off with, you're going to have to have a vice, some, you know, some type, something to hold uh, the hook. Um, the lowest introductory, you know, lowest price point you can get to would be a, uh, a clamp vice. It just clamps onto a tabletop. Um, they work. Anything will work. I mean, I've, I've thrown those into uh, kits when I went up to Alaska and bolted them onto tailgates to tie because I didn't have anything else. I've even tied flies by hand, which that's a lot of fun. But <laughs> you know what they say, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. So we, we figured it out and got her done. But, you know, there's... When you're just starting out, it's it's just like starting out with golf or even starting out with fly fishing for that matter. Um, you know, you can go out and buy a seven or eight hundred dollar rod, but if you've never cast one before, you won't throw a line any better than you will a ten dollar rod you picked up from a pawn shop. So, you know, start start at the low end and see if you like it and move up from there. Yeah. How about like hand tools? So you talked about the vice and a pedestal. So what are some of the the tools required? Because it's very finite work, right? When you say right. you tied one by your own hand, I'm thinking um, there's got to be some other tool involved to do that when I look at the intricacies of those flies. Right. So you're you're going to have to have some a couple bobbins to hold thread with. You know, now we're sounding like we're getting out of an outdoor podcast and we're, we're working into a sewing room, but... <laughs> They call them what they, they work, call them. Yeah. I, I wish I had a more masculine name for them, but it's a bobbin. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, you need some scissors. A uh, pair of hackle pliers will be good. Um, you don't necessarily have to start with a whip finish tool. You can always do a half hitch with just a bodkin or a uh, empty pen tube. I mean, it really doesn't take a lot of materials to get mm -hmm. going. So on a budget, on a budget, if a guy was to want to start, let's say he didn't have a lot of money, but he had a passion to do this, what, what's the what's the dollar figure to either buy? Would you recommend buying a starter kit with everything in it, or piecing a kit together that you may be able to get better quality or maybe better type of equipment based on it being, you know, piecemeal you know, versus? I think here really you need to you need to think about the the age of the person starting this you know like for my kids i bought them kits because they're relatively cheap but all the tools inside of them are cheap and then that way i could gauge how how much passion they had for it um, if you were pretty sure this is something you were going to do i would probably steer away from the kit and piece stuff together you could get basic tools for probably 50 bucks you know not a horrible expense okay the so materials relatively... are a little bit more than sure than the tools, but they last a while. Yeah. So just getting started, you know, just an intro set is, it's not going to break the bank. No, so, not at all. And you think about when you go to, you know, commercial stores like Sportsman's Warehouse, Cabela's, Bob Boards, even some of the, the actual pro shop fly shops, you know, some of these flies, you're paying three to five bucks a fly. And 
to me, it tells me there's a difference in the 99 cent fly on, on clearance or you get, you know, uh, you know, 15 for five or a dozen for five bucks at Bob Ward's versus, you know, getting three for the same price at a premium store. And I've seen the difference cause I've bought both and, and typically the on sale flies last me, you know, probably 15 to 20 casts before the thing starts falling apart and the, right. the bead head wants to come off and, right. The pheasant tail starts to, to, you know, fringe or break. So versus the other, the custom or custom flies, I can throw them all day and typically um, not have any issues with them parting. Right. Yeah, you're exactly right there. So, okay. Um, so, well, speaking specifically to, you know, certain patterns. So obviously there's the, you know, the amateur guy. I mean, if I was new to this, would you recommend... Um, you know, getting some lessons or going to like a professional fly shop or a fly tying class and, you know, signing up for something like that if you've, if you've never done it before? Or is it something you could pull up on YouTube and try to figure out how to tie, uh, you know, uh, some type of fly like an Adam's Trude fly or something? I mean, right. what you would know, be the best way? I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, when I started this, there was no internet. There was no YouTube. And I wanted to do it so bad I got a kit and was attempting to decipher, you know, what's a, what's, what is a hackle? How, what's my, my hook gap and all of these things and trying to learn it from a book, which you can do. Um, but just like anything else, you know, it's a, it's a lot easier if you've got a guide, if you've got a teacher. Um, I still think that would probably be the best way to start once you've got the basics down and you've got you know, somebody to say, yes, this is good, or you need to tighten up your wraps, or you might try this little tip, then hit YouTube. Once you hit, you you know, once you get the basics down and you hit YouTube, I mean, yeah. you can tie anything. Sky's the limit at that yeah. point. Yeah. It's you saw, amazing. You saw that fly that I tied today, the, the Drake imitation. I got that pattern off YouTube. I mean, that's a, that's a sexy fly. Yeah. And that's crazy. I mean, so with that, it's like, so... You know, for you, you're you've been doing this for a lot of years, and and considered probably more of a veteran type fly tire. I mean, on a on a typical fly, you know, pheasant tail, bluing olive. I mean, what what's the time commitment on something like that? Is that a if you sit down and knock it out? Is that a you know one hour thing, or is that a fifteen minute? I mean, what's typically? I guess depending on the technicality of the fly, but on average, what is it, how much how much time does it take you to tie a fly? You know, if I sit down and I'm committed to it and not distracted, um, depending on the pattern, like a, a humpy, for example, I could probably crank one of those out about every seven minutes. Um, so if I'm running low on my dry fly stash, I will take my kit with me when we go up in the woods and I've been known to set it up and crank out 10 flies in a half hour real fast so mm -hmm. we can get on the water and get going. Uh, some of the other flies... Um, you know, you're looking at 15, 20 minutes per fly for, for me. You know, I mean, commercial tires can crank out some amazingly beautiful flies in no time at all. Yeah. And, and they're fun to watch. Yeah. But uh, we're like going to talk about my, that in a little bit. But yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, the, I like to fill ratio. up my box and then not touch it again. So I, I'll tie in spurts. I tie in the winter and fish in the summer. Gotcha. Yeah, that's a, probably a good. That's probably a good way to do it. Cause last thing you want to be doing in the summer when there's hatch going on is be sitting at home tying exactly. flies. Exactly. I'd rather have my tackle box ready. Absolutely. Okay. So speaking of that, so let's talk about some of these flies. I mean, 
what is some of your favorite flies to tie? Um, I like to tie flies that catch fish, bottom line. As far as aesthetics, the uh, Royal Wolf is hands down my favorite. Um, ever since I was little, the first time I saw a picture of one of those, to me, that is that is the quintessential dry fly. And, you know, that's just my personal preference. Is it the colors? Is it the green, the black, or is I, it... I, I like the black and the pe- or the, the red the red abdomen and the peacock and the way that they were split up. It just it just looked like a really really neat fly. I had no idea what I was getting into the first time I tried to tie one. Uh, my friend uh, Ben that taught me how to fly fish I told you about. Mm-hmm. He can't stand to tie them because they're time consuming. And to be honest with you. You know, and a lot of people think this, and I get asked that quite a bit, is how many flies do I need? How many different patterns do I need? Honestly, it's all in how you fish it, you know. Um, I'll bet you, you know, and and that's where Ben and I kind of differ. He probably, at any one time, never has more than nine or ten different patterns in his box because he's always got one that works. Yeah. I like to experiment. Those those same core nine or ten are what I fish with. 95% 95% of the time, but I really like to experiment and play with some of these patterns and, and make it art. You know, when I was studying acupuncture, that was one thing that uh, one of my instructors always, he, he told me and it always stuck with me. He said, I don't care what you do in life. It doesn't matter what you do. Make it art. You, you make it the best you can. So, yeah. you know, in the wintertime, I like to start on the fire and put in a movie and just practice. Just start going. Yeah. See what, what comes. Yeah, so like... I remember when I think after I had just met you and you found out that I fly fished, you had tied me some Royal Wolves. I think you gave me a few, like three or four Royal Wolves that you tied. And I still have, I think, a couple of them. I know I've used a few of them. Um, excellent dry fly, right? I mean, we'll probably, if if there's ever a dropper scenario, I'm, I'm usually using a Royal Wolf mm-hmm. on the top, maybe a little slick on it just to keep it floating. But um Speaking of like nymphing, I mean, is there any types of nymphs that um, you enjoy tying or enjoy fishing with? Um, you know, the, probably the first fly that anybody will learn and probably should learn is a woolly bugger. And that can mimic about anything. It looks like nothing, but it imitates everything. And you can use that in a nymph scenario. You can even use it as a streamer if you want. That, if it's a rainy day or early in the season, there's not a lot big hatch going on. A uh, woolly bugger of some color is probably my go-to fly. Um, beyond that, the prince nymph and the pheasant tail nymph are probably my next two favorites. I'd have a hard time telling you which one of those I like better. Yeah. And I do those in not much that I do as standard. I like to do a lot of really offbeat colors. But again, I only do them because they work. Yeah. There's different different streams like different colors. Yeah. So speaking of colors, we were talking a little bit last night. Um, you were kind of educating me a little bit about, um, you know, some of the UV. Uh-huh. Um, and we were talking a little bit about how, you know, some of these fish, you know, depending on the depths of the rivers and the rocks, they like to find those deep pockets, especially in the summertime when the, when the temperatures get, get warmer in the water. And they'll hit those deep pools. But you were talking about how some of the UV now that they're putting in some of the patterns, the fish can see that up to like a couple hundred feet or something you were yeah, saying? Yeah, it, it's ridiculously deep. I, I had come across the article. Well, let me, I should back up. Um, I was at a, a uh, fly tying expo, and 
you know, they have all kinds of raffles and everything there. And we, uh, my friend Ben, who I spoke of so fondly, he won this fly tying box and almost everything in there was chartreuse. And it was just god awful ugly. He's like, what am I going to do with this? I've got four pounds of feathers and fur here that it, <laughs> nothing is chartreuse. Yeah. And so for fun, just, just to start using up some of the t- material, he took some chenille and some marabou and he tied up a chartreuse woolly bugger. And uh, he and I and a, another friend of ours, um, before Ben moved away, we had a, this little ritual and we would go fly fishing on New Year's Day every year to break in the new year. And we were having no luck at all. And so Ben pulled out his uh, chartreuse woolly bugger, which we now have nicknamed our shy and unobtrusive fly. <laughs> and he threw that, bounced it off the ice, and gave it a little jig, and it fell in the water and got hammered. And we thought, wow, I can't believe that worked. And then he was the only one catching fish. So before long, we switched over to the chartreuse. So I thought, why, why does that work? That shouldn't work. And it was kind of by accident. I was looking up. I found where some biologist was studying the feeding habits of fish in the ocean and talking about how they see in the UV spectrum. And I thought, you know, because peacock feather by itself is very iridescent. Uh, It's got lots of colors, blues and reds and greens if you shine a UV light on it. And I thought, wow, that's maybe what happens with trout. So I did a little bit more digging and found some evidence that uh, corroborated my theory. And so I started looking for those patterns. And now we tie an awful lot with chartreuse. I look for pinks and purples and anything in that UV spectrum. You know, because if you think about the colors of the minnows and, and, and their flash, it all shines up in UV light, especially yeah. on a cloudy day. Yeah. You know, that, that UV, I believe it's UVB, keeps penetrating. Well, it's almost like a spotlight. It's almost better to fish on a cloudy day. So I see it cloud up. We switch over to UV material and let her fly. Game on. Game on. Yeah, I think about like salmon fishing, that flash, you know, because mm-hmm. you typically sit in those bait balls and then... Um, when you get that fish on, I mean, it's on, but you can see when they start to come to surface, that flash. And right. it's got to be some type of UV that makes that happen because sometimes those fish can still be 30, 40 feet down, but you see that flash happen as they roll over. It's just, it's amazing. Yeah. And I think you were saying upwards to a couple hundred feet down. I mean, yeah, if that's I remember deep right, water. That's really deep water. And it's dark down there. Yep. Wow. So I thought, you know, fish are fish, so... You know, and, and for instance, I, because as you can tell, since we call the uh, chartreuse woolly bugger our shy and unobtrusive fly, we like to nickname our flies as we come up with different patterns. And I have a few streams that I like to fish on in central Idaho that um, the chartreuse and the pinks seem to be a particularly productive color. And so I, rather than tying a red abdomen on my royal wolf, I tie a chartreuse on there rather than the red and i've nicknamed that the sexy wolf <laughs> there you go <laughs> so and i've got a black ice one that with uh, you know some uv dubbing and we call that the disco wolf and <laughs> we've got all kinds of names for them but they're productive they work yeah well it's like a lot of the guys i hunt with you know when they they'll hunt a certain buck for you know three four years they'll have them on trail cams and they typically name them, you know, every animal that they're after, they've got a name for them that, um, you know, eventually a lot of times they harvest the animal, but it's interesting how even 
in in our sport and all our sports we mm-hmm. we name things certain things or based on situations or experiences that we have so how about like um so we've talked about you know some of the dry flies wet flies we've talked about nymphing is there any types of um terrestrials that you either like to tie or that you have in your fly box um i don't really like tying terrestrials to be honest with you they're they're big probably my favorite one that i do and it's about the only one that i do tie are the muddler minnow because you can use it as a minnow or you can double it as a terrestrial you can double it as a hopper um i've tied some foam body hoppers and it's not i don't tie them because i dislike the fly or there's something wrong with the fly I just have, I, I'm that guy that's got this quintessential pattern in his mind, and most of the terrestrials just aren't gorgeous flies. Sure. I, you know, I like Yeah. I always think of, like, the Chernobyl. Like a, exactly. When, when I was fishing the flathead a few years ago, we were we were using Chernobyls as, as our, our terrestrial, then we were dropping nymphs and other things off of them, and they're so big and they're so ugly, but they make a great strike indicator. I mean, they do. That was the extent of really what we use those for. Um, but um, to me, it's like they look like that. There's a lot of intricacies in those flies trying to tie them because you've got the foam, you've got the different colors. But and but then you go to buy one, they're like four to five bucks. Some yeah. of them are. Yeah. They're very expensive flies. Yep. Yep. They so. are. And you know there and there's. And there's some that I really do like, and they're difficult. Some of the extended body hoppers, you know, like I said, I like the art of it, but I've seen some people that tie an extended body hopper, and they've got that weave that goes back and makes the abdomen, goes past the bend of the hook, and I, it's a thing of beauty. Yeah. Uh, that, that's a skill I don't have yet. I can, like I said, this is something a guy could do for lifetimes, and yeah, you might be good at three or four patterns. It's, yep. it's amazing. Yeah, that's cool. How about like, I always think about, and we're going to talk a little bit about different flies during different hatches, but I remember we were fishing, I can't remember if it was Camus or somewhere, but we were fly fishing the banks and we had just gotten some rain and right after the rain hit, we just started seeing, you know, the fish weren't, there was a small hatch going, but they weren't really quite hitting the surface, but it was almost like an emerger style pattern. I remember Ben told us, "Hey guys, throw on emergers." So yep, we all in the film. And uh, oh my gosh, I think Ben walked back with four or five trout on his on his stringer. And are there any types of emergers or, or timing of emergers that you think is 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 better than other times to use those? Um, so when they're feeding in the film like that, the film is that couple inches of water, and usually you'll see that activity. You know, and th- and this is where it's really, really beneficial to go with somebody who spent a lot of time feed or fly fishing, because uh, you know Lucas. I mean, it's it's also an art to read the water. Yeah. And absolutely, it you is. Know, if if you've never been fly fishing, if you've been one of these bait and weight guys, not that there's anything wrong with that. It has its time and place, mm-hmm. and I still do it. But uh, when you go with a fly fisherman that's really trying to figure out what's going on below the surface, and you can tell when they're just kind of. Um, sipping they're feeding in that film they're not breaking the surface you can see you can kind of see them bubbling see down a little there. boil but yeah. right you can see that little boil it's time to throw on an emerger or, you know or a spinner or something like that you know that's looking dead there and there and they'll just feed it from below yeah um, a lot of times after the rain you know if we get a nice light sprinkle it kind of calms those hatches down you know especially like if there's a midge hatch coming off they hatch 365 days a year you know so a little bit of rain suppresses that a bit, and those fish will just start sipping from the bottom. Yeah. 
and yeah, it's 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 a great. T- it's just all about learning how to read it. Yeah, yeah. I remember because that when we when we fished that day, we had everything from sunny and seventy five degrees yeah. to a little bit of rain, and it was interesting watching all the other folks fishing. There wasn't a whole lot of catching going on, but there were two guys out in those float tubes and. Yeah. They seem to be hammering it out there, out on the lake that day when they were when they were fishing from the float tubes. But it is it's interesting when I think of fishing like a lake versus a, a stream or a river, um, finding some of those bends on the river or pockets and riffles and areas where you know fish are going to be. And it it's amazing. I've sat and fished certain spots, certain rocks. Literally, I'll sit and drift over a rock because I know there's a fish there. And I, I've sat and I've casted 30, 40 times, and then I've had a few strikes, right? But you just know there's like certain places and pockets that mm-hmm. hold those fish. And uh, it's just interesting. There is a whole dynamic of understanding and reading the river, re, you know, reading the stream and really mm-hmm. getting an affinity for where the fish are. And, you know, it takes time to do that, right? I mean, a lot of times you see oh. new fly fishermen, they just go out and they start wading in five feet of water and they're up here trying to cast and, right. you know, they're they're still trying to understand, you know, how it works. But it, 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 it evolves over time and you start to have those scenarios and experiences where you catch those fish and you, and you run into those experiences like, hey, I remember this is a similar spot on this river that I caught this fish and it just kind of comes back to you as you continually do that, so... Okay, um, let's talk a little bit about, you know, commercial tying versus, you know, how many flies you tie. So uh, a statistic I ran into I thought was pretty interesting. Most commercial fly tires can produce up to roughly 36,000 flies annually. So, you know, and so Mike's laughing right now because he's thinking about this from, you know, his hobby standpoint. I want to get a little bit of clarity between, okay, 36,000 on a commercial fly tire versus how many ties do you fly or do you tie let's say in a I don't know in a month to six months or even in a year average so you're talking a commercial guy that's 3,000 flies a month correct I mean that's insane um, I guess that's great because a lot you, you get all these guys with the two dollar cast so you know yeah that adds up right um, I'll bet you I probably tie less than 300 flies a year and I'll do most of that in December. Uh, <laughs> like you said, I'll crank up the fire, put on a movie, and, oh, I'm running low on humpies, or I'm running low on nymphs, and I'll tie a few, and I'll tie a few in a different colors, and I'll just kind of do that off and on throughout the winter. And there was a period here, I tied quite a few of them five or six years ago, and I bet I didn't tie a fly again for two years because my supply was up. Sure. <laughs> and then I had to go back and relearn a bunch of patterns. So <laughs> so it is a bit of a su- supply and demand. It is. It's thing. exactly type a supply and demand yeah. thing. And, and, you know, and we all learn lessons from things like that. And I learned don't get rusty because I have some really cool patterns and I have no idea how I did it. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting to think that someone on a year's basis could, could tie that many 36, th- I mean, that, of course that's an average, right? But for your commercial fly tire to be able to do that. I mean, just the repetitive motion, you know, you wonder, are they only tying four different patterns? Are they tying 30 different patterns? Are they tying one different pattern, right? Because you almost think to tie that many, you become very specialized in a certain pattern or a certain, you know, type of fly versus just saying, yeah, I go from everything from dry flies to streamers to leeches to salmon egg, you know, all that kind of stuff. 
You know, and, and, and the, this could be a situation where the truth is somewhere in between. I know um, I've met a couple people who own online fly shops. Whether or not they're still around, I don't know. But they're, they were that was their big selling point is they were selling hand-tied flies for machine-tied prices. So you were able to get a 99-cent fly. All the hand tires are in China. And they teach them one pattern, and that's all that person ties day in and day out. You know, so I imagine if you tied, you know, nothing but a PMD day in and day out, you're going to get dang efficient at it. Sure. You're going to get really efficient at it. That's like anything, I guess, if you if you work in a, you know, commercial setting or even in a manufacturing setting, I mean, you just become, muscle memory becomes to the point where, you know, when it, you started doing it, it probably took you, you know, 15 minutes to tie it now. They've got to be down to just minutes right. tying some of these flies, right? You know, and on the flip side of that, I was at an expo in Idaho Falls. It's one of the larger fly tying expos in the country. And uh, I believe it's Bob Jacklin out of Jackson Hole, Wyoming. You can just about name whatever fly you want, and he'll tie it right in front of you in about two minutes. It is obscene to watch. Wow. And they're perfect. I'm sure the quality, time. yeah, the quality is just... It's, right on. It's crazy. So yeah. eating a sandwich in one hand and tying with the other. That's, <laughs> wow. <laughs> and it's cool because, you know, how many, I mean, on your hand, how, I mean, you probably know more because you're in the, you're in the industry, but I mean, how many people do you know that are fly tires, right? I mean, I know less than a handful of probably I could count them on my, on my one hand, how many people I know that are either you know more of a hot from a hobby standpoint or people that run shops that do it and i was born and raised in montana and in and out of fishing shops all the time and i only know a handful of guys that that do this it's to me it's like it's almost like taxidermy it's kind of a dying breed there's just there's a lot of demand for them and there's just not a lot of supply of flight tires out there yeah I, i think i'd agree with you on that um just you saying that's making me think and i know an awful lot of people that fly fish and I go fly fishing with an awful lot of people. And besides myself, I know two other guys that tie that's that I yeah. fish with on a regular basis. And you've got a huge network of people right. that you fish with. And like I say you go to a lot of the trade shows and you, you, you meet a lot of these guys and you just run into guys too, that are on the river that end up, you know, being, you know, friends and stuff as you, as you, as you, you know, run into them on the river. But it's amazing to me to think that, yeah, there's, I mean, it, it, I just don't know a lot of people that do that, mm-hmm. right? I know a lot of people that load ammunition, right? I know a lot of people that, you know, other hobbies, they shoot archery or they, you know, they play golf, but you just don't hear, you know, of many people that, that tie flies. So to me, it is something that, uh, you know, it's it's neat to to know people that do that. And I think it would be even cooler to learn how to do it and say that, you know, hey, I can catch my own fish on my own fly. I think that's just a cool a cool milestone to hit. Yeah. Yeah, in a fly fisherman's world. Okay. Um, so we'll kind of segue a little bit, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about, you know, kind of how, and I'm thinking kind of from your standards, you know, understanding some entomology with bugs and how they go from different phases into, you know, putting that into reality on the on the river. So, you know, what are some scenarios that you have? You know, let's say it's a it's a warm day in July, and you're out there first thing in the morning. Okay, what types of flies? I mean, you're obviously you're driving out to where you're going to be, or you've camped there, and you're thinking about okay, tomorrow morning it's going to be, 
you know, 55 degrees at seven o'clock when I hit the river, what are the types of things, what are the types of flies you're thinking about in that type of scenario? So as soon as you say July, the first two things that pop into my mind is, I mean, there's always going to be a mayfly hatch of some sort, always. So first week of July, a lot of places you're looking at a drake, you're looking at the bigger family of mayflies. So, you know, I'll be looking for drakes. Uh, first week of July is a lot of caddis. Um, mornings, you're looking more into the, the PMDs, the pale morning duns, some, possibly some blue wing olive, which are just smaller versions of mayflies. Um, so typically dry fly type application? Dry fly is my favorite. That is the way that I will always start. I, there's, there's just, I want to say something pure about dry flying. It is yeah. just, God, that's just a rush when you see that fish rocking Surface. through the water. Yeah to go after a fly yeah you know and, and to people who have never fly fished before you will understand um you know once you try it how difficult it really is because it is so easy to get excited and you actually rip the fly out of the water before the fish has the chance to to get it you, you, you almost it, that seems inconceivable but it happens a lot yeah or they will hit it and you're too slow on the set and they spit it out it's like how do you how can you have that much time and tell you know, there's just... And they know, too, when it's not real. It's buddy. amazing. Because they, yeah. they'll bump it and bump it, and they're like, nope, so I don't like that one. If it's a good sunny day, immediately I'm going to go dry fly. If they're not biting, I'm not opposed to uh, going deep and nymph fishing. Um, I used to hate nymph fishing with a passion. I used to hate it, hate it, hate it. The only time we'd nymph fish is when nothing else worked. And I hated it because I didn't know how to do it. And Do you think part of that, and I, I think about folks at Nymphitch, because that's what any anyone will tell you in a fly fishing class or if you go to a guide school or a, or a learn how to, you know, fly fish one-on-one, that's one of the first things they're going to teach you to do is how to nymph fish. Because I think the application is fairly simple, but there's a paradigm around it that people think, well, if all else fails, I'll throw a, you know, I'll throw a copper john on and it's exactly. a good fly and I'll catch a fish. Exactly. Uh, and I think one of my biggest hangups with nymph fishing before I really learned how to do it correctly is it felt too much like bait and weight. You know, if it was deep water, we're throwing on a strike indicator, and I'm like, now I'm essentially doing a bait and weight with a fly rod. This is not very fun. And uh, we had, so how, how this was all borne out, um, I can't remember what year it was for sure, but uh, we had a particularly wet year uh, here in southwest Idaho, and every weekend we had the opportunity to go out. It was raining. And typically the rain knocks down the flies and the dry, flish and dry flying is not so good. Um, the rivers were full, so they're overburdened, so that screws up the hatches. And so by default, we were forced to nymph fish. And once we started uh, doing it on a regular basis and actually becoming proficient at it, it quickly became our favorite way to go. And then it wasn't too long that, uh, you know, when I go out with Ben or anybody else, I would start out nymph fishing, and then if they were rising really good, if I saw a lot of activity, then I would switch to a dry. I never ever thought I'd see that day, but um, generally, if you want big fish, you gotta have to go deep. Yeah, you gotta go deep, right? Yeah, especially in a July time frame. If you're fishing even afternoon time frame where you know the water's heating up, it's you gotta get deep. Right. You gotta get deep. So you now you start to even start talking about like sink tip line, right? Mm-hmm. With a with probably a longer lead and a and some type of 
you know, heavy, heavy beaded fly to try to get down to those places where those fish right. hang out. Right. Yeah. I'm real big on the, on the weighted flies on the beads. Um, you know, and, and as you said, that just jogged my memory a little bit. First week of July, I'm also going to be turning over rocks and looking for stone flies because you're probably going to get a golden stone hatch somewhere late June, early July, most of the places I go. So that would definitely be something I do kick over some rocks and see what happens. Yeah, sure. Where was it? We last time we fished, we went to the South Fork. Was it the South Fork? Yeah, of, we were on the South Fork of the Boise. Of the Boise River. And uh, so I've fished, you know, I've been, I fished the Boise River in town, in, in Boise, and then I fished it at like Duck Landing. There's a place down near Duck Landing, I think is what they call it, off of, I can't remember, I think it's off of Linder or somewhere, but um, I just sat there with a nymph and I literally cast, and it's, it, I think it's below the hatchery, and it's a ways down below, but I bet I sat and I caught probably 60 fish in a matter of an hour. Just same drift, same pattern, mm-hmm. um, just flopping. I think it was a red copper john. Boom, and, I, and my wife was sitting there and she was just watching it. It was just so cool because um, it's simple, yet it's not either, right? I mean, there's a right. tactic to it. And I'm, I'm fishing in an area that's got trees overhead that are probably you know, within 10 to 15 feet above me. So keeping a low cast, right? You just can't get crazy on a cast in there. Or you're going to be hung up all day. But I specifically remember that day we were on the South Fork of the, the Boise River and uh, we kind of had split up. Uh, and I was watching you. You were walking right off the bank of the river and you were kicking rocks over right. as I'm out there trying to, that one fish kept bumping my line I had. And I was wondering what the heck you were doing, but I figured there was a rhyme or reason to what you were doing uh, that day because you look like almost like a bear like a bear in the springtime <laughs> when they're kicking rocks over looking for moths or larvae or something and i wanted to see what was coming up yeah. there, there it was a little bit of a drizzle that day it was pretty overcast so there wasn't a lot of top end activity uh there were there were some some rises but they were pretty few and far between and the south fork is pretty notorious for uh heavy pressure so th- those fish have seen everything and typically you got to go deep because most people don't. Yeah, they stick so, to the surface. Right. I wanted to see what I could see and see what it was going to take. And uh, I've, I've been pretty successful on that stretch of river with a dry and a dropper. You know, so, you know, you have the, the dry on top and then you've got something to imitate in the merger. Sure. You know, coming through that stage. How, how when you say dropper, so how far are you leading off of your dry fly? down are you it will depend six on inches the depth of the river okay you know so if, I, if i'm fishing a smaller creek i'll have a really short lead four to six inches is all if i'm on a pretty big body of water i'll go 12 to 18 inches okay because you really want to get that that heavier fly that wet right. fly down and right okay and then that afternoon it was it was kind of a jekyll and hyde kind of day we went <laughs> and we fished we fished the lake and we just hammered the bluegill and the crappie that was yeah. a lot of fun right near the snake yeah. river there we were just out of a mountain home, weren't we? Yep, yep. Yeah, that was a lot of fun that day. We had a lot of fun. First and foremost, I want to thank everyone for listening. The RNA Outdoors podcast is produced every other week for your enjoyment, and show notes are found both on the podcast feed and our website, www.rnaoutdoors.com forward slash podcast. Feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed. 
We are live on Podbean and iTunes. For iOS slash Apple users, go to Podcasts on your Apple device, search for RNA Outdoors, and hit the purple subscribe button. When doing this, it will automatically upload when new podcasts are loaded and they will download into your queue. When you subscribe to a podcast using the podcast app for iOS or using iTunes on your Mac or PC, you are subscribing to the podcast updates by that particular podcast producer. With iCloud, you can synchronize your podcast subscriptions across all devices. For Android users, you can access the podcast through Podbean or just use our website, again, www.rnaoutdoors.com forward slash podcast. In addition, under the RNA Outdoors podcast channel, please leave a review and a five-star rating. These reviews help boost our popularity and outreach. You can also follow us on any of our social media platforms. Twitter is at RNA Outdoors. Instagram is hashtag Rod in Arrow Outdoors. And of course, Facebook, you can search by just looking at RNA Outdoors. All links are in the show notes as well. If you like what you have heard, we hope you'll pass along our channel to your friends and colleagues. Please join us next time for another edition of the Rod and Arrow Outdoors podcast.